All right, welcome back, podcast listeners. Uh, this would be episode 39. Uh, in the last episode, I was talking about my history as a graffiti writer, and uh, I think we ended up at, I guess, into 93, just before I moved to San Francisco. Um, but instead of picking up um, there, I'd like to go back um, again into those early years and uh, fill out some more details. Um, if you hear that sound, that's just me drinking some tea. I get dry mouth, as you might expect. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's go back. Um, I want to go back to 1988, um, when I was a junior in high school at, uh, Del Norte in Albuquerque for the Albuquerque people that are listening. I'll be dropping a lot of Albuquerque particulars. This might be a fun one for you. Um, so yeah, junior at Del Norte high school, I was a full on skateboarder nerd um wasn't uh terribly disliked by most people but i think i just kind of uh was a bit undercover considering that i was maybe the tallest kid in school i think there might have been one guy that was taller um so at least i stood out in that way uh i guess it was the end of my junior year um the uh, counselor at the high school uh, asked me to come meet with her. I kind of thought I was in trouble for something, but it turned out that uh, I hadn't taken uh, PE, physical education yet, and uh, I was going into my senior year, and I would uh, need to get that taken care of before I could graduate, and uh, I thought that was really funny. At, at the time, um, I was skateboarding every single day I was super super healthy and thin and strong and uh, I just was like what a dumb thing to have to do is like some gym class you know I was in honors courses and stuff maybe kind of a, a snobbish uh, smarty pants kind of guy <laughs> and uh, so I had to take PE so as a senior uh, I would be, I ended up taking PE with all freshmen. It was a, a course that mostly freshmen just, it was an automatic thing you're doing just to get out of the way, um, take care of that graduation requirement. So it, it dropped me into this whole class of, uh, of freshmen. And uh, I'm trying to think, what did I know about? I guess the only thing I knew my, about graffiti writing culture at that point was what I gleaned from books like Subway Art or the movie Break-In, kind of the usual uh, pop culture references. Um, I, I don't think I'd ever known a writer up to that point. Um, at least nobody had told me about it like that. Uh, but there was this uh, guy named John uh, that was in my PE class and he was a, I believe he was a freshman at the time, um, but he was this big muscular guy. Um, he was 
he was it was pretty obvious that he wasn't from New Mexico and I wasn't sure where he was from but it turns out that he had moved there from San Francisco and um, I don't know I don't know if, I think he might have written graffiti on his t-shirt or his books or something um, but I remember if I remember this correctly <laughs> Uh, he wrote uh, T T E E F C and Tank One uh, R O F Crew, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, and his tank hand style was like a one flow bus bomber style from San Francisco. That's very very particular. Even these days when styles are internationally known that San Francisco one flow bus style is real real particular and I really really love it and uh, this guy John was really really good at it I thought and I don't know it was just something uh, you know I knew about and uh, he was he was a super early influence uh, I have a funny story like he was a, a big big kid like a big guy and real muscular and I was still taller than him by I think a few inches but I remember he would sometimes grab pick me up like a professional wrestler and put me up on his shoulders and kind of do like a back-breaking move like the old wrestlers used to do and uh to this day I think he's the only person that has ever just lifted me up off my feet like that um <laughs> it's just such a funny memory for me uh before all the graffiti stuff later on um you know john used to throw me up on his shoulders and spin me around <laughs> um so after i oh another side note funny story about the no i'm not going to get into that because i'm going to stick to the graffiti stuff my memory can take me down all kinds of segues but i'm going to try to stick to the graffiti stuff for now so after i graduated from uh high school let's see i went to i guess that's when i went to thailand for three weeks and i came back and then uh I started writing graffiti as I talked about in the uh, previous episode if you want to get caught up on that one first before you jump into this one um, and I remember in the neighborhood where I went to high school the same high school I went with John um, I started seeing these amazing wild style tags um, and it it took me a while to figure out what they said, but it said cast oneer, and it was this. Oh man, to this day, they're my favorite wild style tags I've ever seen. Um, I can re remember one photographically in my memory, on the side of the swimming pool at uh, oh, is that Montgomery Park? Ooh, this is a. a faint memory but I just remember it just being an amazing I think it was in blue on a gray wall um <laughs> weird details but they were amazing and it was different 
I'd never seen anybody do anything like that before. And I don't know how I connected it with uh, this guy, John, that I had PE class with that would throw me around like a wrestler. <laughs> um, but I, I somehow knew that, that it was him. I, I wish I could remember that detail. And I really wanted to meet him and kind of give him his props and maybe learn something from him. And because we went to high school together, um, I kind of knew how, and I kind of vaguely knew where he lived, like what part of the neighborhood. And I kind of waited after school for him once. Now, this is already once I was in college, I believe. And he was still in high school. And I stopped him, and it, he was walking home with his girlfriend. And here's this big, goofy, fucking nerd dude <laughs> that he knew from school coming up to him. And he was like, ah, oh, fuck, what's up? I could just tell. He was like, oh, no. And I was like, hey, man, John, right? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, hey, you write cast, don't you? And he was like, mm, I don't know what you're talking about. If I remember this correctly, I'd love to hear John's version of the story if he even remembers this moment. But we happened to be standing right next to McKinley Middle School that you'd walk past on the way home from high school. And he had done, there was this long wall that faced the schoolyard, and he had done maybe 10 CST throw-ups, one after another, um, what we call a rally when you just do one after the other like that and take out a whole length of, of space. Um, and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, dude, look behind you. Like, I know you did that, you know, and it's fucking cool. And I think it's sick and you're dope. And I just wanted you to know that. And I write giant now and I'm real into it and I'd love to learn more. And he just kind of laughed at me like, I don't know. I must have been super fucking nerdy. And he was just like, that's cool, man. You know, uh, we'll, we'll hang again. You know, our paths will cross. Just keep doing it. And I was like, right on. I will. And uh, and it did. We, we did end up uh, doing a bunch of stuff later on in ATK crew productions and whatnot. And I forget. I... And this is all before I met uh, Doc and Agree, which I talked about in the previous podcast. Um, Cast was really the, the like I say, the, the first real writer influence that I knew personally. And, and again, you know, it was a, a weird dynamic because I was such a fucking toy. Super, super toy. And, uh... At some point, I don't know if it was through cast or it might have been through my friend uh, Brandon um, that I like skated with, my, my best little homie. But I got introduced to this dude, Dano, that wrote uh, Wisdom. And later on, he wrote Omen. But when I met him, he was writing uh, Wisdom. And he passed away recently. So he's, he's been on my mind a whole bunch lately. Um, so I'm going to tell a little bit about, uh, how I met him. Uh, 
if I remember correctly, our first meeting uh, was at the legendary Frontier Restaurant that's uh, still in operation in Albuquerque, right across from the University of New Mexico campus. Uh, it used to be open 24 hours until the violence and mayhem got too crazy <laughs> on the weekends. Um, but it was our hangout. Um, you know, if you were counter culture at all, or uh, just a person that was out late at night, um, which was pretty unusual in a town like Albuquerque, uh, you'd kind of gravitate towards the frontier. And uh, we met there one afternoon. I was in uh, my first year of college studying architecture as my major. And uh, I forget what uh, Dano was up to at that point. I believe he might have still been in high school. He might have been a, a little bit younger than me. I can't remember exactly, you know, what our age difference was. But in any case, um, we met there. I think whoever had whoever had got us together mentioned to me that they were a sharp, which were skinheads against racial prejudice s h a r p sharps and at the time uh there were along with the usual gangs um that you'd associate with a place like albuquerque there were also these like gangs of like nazi skinheads and then there were their uh mortal enemy the sharps who were also skinheads, but were vehemently anti-racist and kind of were, I think, often created by people who were jumped by the Nazi skinheads. They would end up getting together to get revenge. So it was this kind of wild uh, world of what, I guess what we might consider street fighting nowadays. I think some of the energy might be pushed towards MMA gyms and stuff these days. Um, but back then, it was just out in the streets, um, big, you know, gang fights and stabbings and no guns or anything at that point. Um, pretty much just fist fights, maybe bats. Um, <laughs> uh that's a whole other podcast, I guess. Some sketchy memories are coming back. But anyway, so Dano is part of this anti-Nazi uh, skinhead group. And uh, I got along with them great. Uh, I definitely did not get along with the, the Nazi guys at all. And they definitely tried to get me to join their ranks because I was a tall, smart, white guy, you know. And I just thought they were fucking idiots. I wasn't raised that way. Um, so I told them to fuck off, <laughs> but anyway, um, so Dano had this real, he was a character. He had this real, like the Sharps had a particular haircut. That's kind of like the old pre-racist, uh, skinhead look. Um, there were particular signals about the colors of their suspenders and their laces and things. Um, I was kind of fascinated by it, um, just cause it was, strange and unusual in a place like New Mexico. Um, but he was also a fucking super sick graffiti writer. And uh, like I say, he wrote wisdom uh, with a Z. 
and we both had black books with us when we met, which are the, the sketchbooks that graffiti writers keep and work out our ideas and color schemes and we'll exchange books and write each other's names, you know, out in different styles to share like how we develop lettering and whatnot. And that's what we did. And we just kicked it. And I think at the time, uh, I can't remember the exact dates, but at that point when I met Wisdom, uh, he was beefing with Doc and Agree. And I was like, I remember being really surprised by that because I put Doc and Agree on such a huge pedestal because they did what I thought was obviously the best shit that Albuquerque had seen thus far. Um, so to, to, for me to see people that were just like, oh, no, fuck those dudes, it was like, oh, shit, okay, well, what, what's up? What, why would you feel that way, <laughs> you know? And I can't remember what the explanation was, but I, I feel like Cast and Wisdom had decided to beef with Doc and Agree and were kind of curious if I would join their ranks um you know instead of following the the group of people that were jumping to ally themselves with doc and agree um and i if i remember right we started a crew called kws kids with style and started doing pieces uh all over and we were tagging around the around the city on the streets if i remember right too um but yeah there was a, a brief period there that uh i was allied allied with those two and uh i had a, i have you know really fond memories of that time so while we're talking about 1990 um i'd like to talk a little bit more about agree he was a huge influence on my graffiti writing especially but kind of entire life really um just gonna try to recall some memories uh i remember he was a particularly good uh thief <laughs> it was kind of probably what he was most known for other than his prowess with a spray can um and he taught me a lot about stealing mostly uh just stealing uh goods from stores and various methods um i remember his mom being in on it too when i would uh sometimes hang out at his apartment his mother would uh come into his bedroom and be like she had this real uh heavy brooklyn accent which i'm going to try to replicate a little bit because she was a real interesting lady and she'd say richie richie go to the store Give me some stuff. Like here's a fucking list. You go go get this. Here you go. Here's some money. And she would always give him like just a few dollars, and to get all the stuff on the list, she knew would cost you know twenty or thirty dollars. And uh, off we go to the store, and he would just uh, rack everything on the list, and walk right out and keep the cash that she gave him, <laughs> and walk right back to the house and give it to her and uh you know it was just one of those things like there was nothing 
even at home that was keeping him from uh be- being a, a a good thief and uh we would uh he kind of had a rule if if he needed something and he could steal it he would never ever pay for it um that, that went for food drinks uh gasoline um you name it you name it he he just uh man he would just steal everything uh I'm trying to think well pretty early uh he would take me to like a home depot uh i forget what they were called back then um but they always had like a a garden section they they started adding those to those buildings and usually they'd be off to the side of the main building just a a chain ring chain link kind of a fence and cage uh for all the plants and stuff that they would sell um and often there would be a gap underneath the the fence uh that was tall enough that you could roll a spray can under it so i can't remember who figured this out i i think agree showed me this trick but we would go in and fill up a shopping cart full of spray paint and just push it out to the garden section and uh, behind some plants or whatever we'd park the cart and then just start throwing the cans under the fence to somebody who was you know right there to throw the cans into the trunk of a car Um, so it was a real kind of quick and painless enterprise as long as you were out of sight and the uh, people in the garden section didn't notice what you were doing um, and yeah and we pulled that off so many times um, we would literally clean out whole stores after doing it like even just five or six times we were taking easily a hundred to two hundred cans each haul uh, it was such a great rack for so long I can remember we would put all the cans into milk crates so they were easy to transport and I would uh, keep some of my paint in my bedroom which I probably shouldn't have done as a kid but my parents didn't mind it was just paint 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 you know I had uh, um, like uh, all my art supplies in my room so it wasn't strange to have uh, uh, you know graffiti stuff in there Although I don't think they really thought I was doing graffiti with it. I think they were under the impression I was just doing the nice mural stuff. Um, But at a certain point, I must have had close to 30 full milk crates against one wall in my bedroom. And my parents were like, why do you have all of this spray paint? Like, how do you even have all this? Like, we know you didn't buy all this, you know? And I said, oh, well... Most of it is from, you know, five or six of my friends that uh, their parents won't let them keep the spray paint at their house, you know, and my folks thought that was legit and let me keep all the paint there, but it didn't last long. We were going through a lot of paint. We were painting every single night, but uh, one time, (laughs) great story start out with one time, one time, uh, I went to the Home Depot with a Gree and I went in 
and he was waiting by my car with the trunk open uh, and the key was in the ignition. Uh, I don't think the car was running. We weren't that paranoid. And where we parked was kind of quite far from the front of the building. So you could kind of see security coming and have enough time to bail out. But anyway, I went in. Um, I filled up a cart with paint. There was very, very little spray paint left. It was, uh, you know, I, I had very few choices as far as colors. It was kind of the, the last of it. And of course, you might assume they probably are catching on if most of their inventory of spray paint is being stolen rather quickly. Um, they, I'm sure they kind of started to stake it out or at least ask the employees to keep an eye out on that aisle. So I went, I filled up cart. Um, I was pushing it to the garden section. I don't remember really getting seen by anybody or any obvious uh, signs that I shouldn't uh, go ahead with it, but I decided once I got to the garden section, I pushed the cart to where the best spot behind some plants where it wouldn't be seen, um, but I bailed. Uh, I just didn't feel right, and I just walked out, back out the front door, tried to be as you know indiscreet as possible, took my time, walked back around to the car, and Agree was there with his hands out like, what's up? What happened? Where's what are you doing? What happened? And I was just like, dude, I got a really bad feeling. I think they're on to us. I got the cart all the way to the fence on the other side, and I I bailed. I'm sorry. I, I think they're on to us. And he was like, oh man, fuck that shit. I'm gonna go get him. So I was like, all right, man, be careful. And he went in. He walked right to the garden section, right to the cart, and just started throwing the cans under the fence to me really fast and uh i got them all in the trunk shut the trunk hopped in the driver's seat um turned the car on and just looked to my right um waiting for agree to come around the corner to hop in the car so we could bounce and i waited for a little bit it seemed like longer than it would have taken him just to walk out and i see a home depot employee running around the corner and then running straight at me and i was just like fuck this, I'm out. So I fucking, you know, like right out of a movie, peeled out of the parking lot and bounced. Um, and I really wasn't sure if they got my license plate. So I was a little concerned that, you know, my license plate might be out and police were looking for it. I kind of doubted it since it was just uh, shoplifting basically. But in any case, I was kind of panicked. Um, I drove, where did I go? I drove somewhere, I can't remember. I might have even driven to my parents' house, which was nearby. They might not have been there at the time, but I just needed to use their phone because it was pre-pagers, pre-cell phones. And I had to figure out a place to dump all the paint that was in my trunk. And I knew it was probably not smart to drop it off at my parents' house. I don't even think I was living there at the time. Um, so I called my friend Doc, um, who I'd met pretty recently at that time. And he was like, fuck yeah, Mike, get over here. Bring all the paint. And I was like, fuck yeah. So I hopped in the car. I fucking drove over there real careful. I have a really, really, I had a really obvious car at the time. It was like a 78 Mercury Zephyr that was covered in skateboard stickers inside and out. 
it couldn't be a worse getaway vehicle. It was so obvious. It was missing a back window for a long time. It was just like a punk rock skater smash mobile. We would destroy in that car. We would jump in it. I had no respect for that car, <laughs> but it was fun and it got us all over the place. Um, but I got to, uh, I got to Doc's house. He was already waiting for me. Um, we got all the paint into his house and sat down and had a good laugh and felt like everything was cool. And he didn't mind that my car was in the driveway. Like he would take care of it if a cops came and he really didn't think anything was going to happen. He thought it was fine. Um, and we had a good time. And then maybe after I was there for only 30, 40 minutes, um, I had to go somewhere. I forget where, but, uh, on my way, <coughs> on my way there from Doc's house, I'm going up Montgomery Boulevard in Albuquerque for the locals near Carlisle. Um, and I'm just going up Montgomery and I see on the sidewalk on the right, there's fucking agree. He's just walking. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I roll down the window and I pull up next to him. and I'm like, dude, what's up? Get the fuck in. And he, his, oh, he was so happy to see me. This huge fucking smile. He was so psyched and he hopped in and he was like, yo dude, they didn't get anything on us. Like we're good. And I was like, what happened? And he's like, dude, I fucking dumped all the paint. I'm walking back to the to the front. I get out the front door just a few steps, and I get grabbed by three security guards. And another one runs by me, by me and runs towards you. And I was like, and he was bummed because he thought I was going to get busted. And we were all going to get busted. But So they, they held him, and uh, the other guy came back at some point because I took off and was really frustrated and they called the cops and agree I think was only there not for very long uh, about as long as I was at Doc's and he said the police came and they asked the Home Depot security like what did he steal and they're like he could have st probably stole like a hundred spray cans and the cop was like probably what do you mean and they were like yeah he, you know he threw cans underneath to this other guy that took off in a car and the police officer explained to them that they had no case because they had no actual merchandise that Agree had physically stolen. They had none of it. So, and they didn't even know how much, you know. So they had to, he had to let Agree go. And they took pictures of him, I guess, with a Polaroid camera. So, you know, he was 86th from that Home Depot location. Um, that's how they did it back then. That was like, you know, straight up just the wall of, of thieves, you know, Polaroids. It was kind of a badge of honor to be on some of those. But uh, in any case, they had to let him go. So he was just going to walk all the way home, which would have taken him probably 45 minutes to an hour. And I happened to see him just starting his walk, you know, and we were so fucking psyched. You know, he asked where the paint was and I told him Doc had it. And he was like, fuck, yes, dude, we're good. We're good. We can just never rack from there again, <laughs> at least from that store. Um, he also um, back then we had to steal the different nozzles from different kinds of uh, household aerosol products um, to change the the kind of line style and um, like uh, depth and speed of the spray uh, 
so we were often having to go to like uh, paint stores and art supply stores um, to find those things. And while we were there, we would also just steal whatever else we needed, you know, those black book, uh, the sketchbooks and the big marker sets that were super expensive. Um, we would just steal all that stuff. Um, occasionally we would pay for like one thing. Um, I don't, you know, once in a while. So it, what didn't look so suspicious that we were in their store for 15 minutes and didn't buy anything. Um, but I can remember agree had all these different, um, like ways of dealing with certain situations. Like one I remember in particular, if we were stealing spray cans on our bodies, or putting them in bags that we had on us and just walking out the store, which we called body racking, which is a lot more uh, dangerous just because you actually have the merchandise on you when they catch you, if they do, um, versus like the thing with the throwing it under the fence again, where they had no uh, actual merchandise. Um, so sometimes spray cans, you know, they, they have that metal ball that's inside the can that helps it uh, mix properly when you shake it up. Um, but sometimes that little ball will move around and it makes a little dink dink noise that's pretty recognizable to just about anyone. And uh, when Agree would notice that we might run into that problem as we're walking out of a store, he would uh, he had this big bundle of keys that he would just throw up in the air casually like it was just something he always did. And the noise of the keys would muffle the sound of the cans moving around as you walked out the door. Um, and then he would, uh, you know, once we felt safe, he would stop throwing the keys and put them in his pocket, you know, and I always thought that was so slick, you know, these little, little ways to cover up your, uh, your trail, so to speak. Another great angle was when we would go do freight trains in Albuquerque, uh, agree would always have me stop at the Safeway near the University of New Mexico and he would go in and he'd steal 40s. Usually he could get out with four 40s in his coat without it being too noticeable or with the glass bottles banging together and being obvious. And he would also steal um, steaks. Um, I don't know if he had a sweet tooth and was stealing candy and stuff too. I can't remember that, but I definitely remember the 40s and the steaks. And I was like the first time he came out of Safeway and started unloading his pockets in the car. I was like, steaks, dude? What's with the steaks? You know, why, why are we stealing steaks right now, bro? <laughs> and he was like, you'll see, you'll see. So we get down to the, the freight train yard and, uh, Whenever we would get down there, we would kind of walk up cautiously because there were these guard dogs. I think they were German Shepherds. I think there was two of them. And they would just let the worker guys know if anybody was in the yard, they would bark. And the worker guys would come out of their little work shack um, into the cold and start in looking around, you know, looking around. Um, so the, the dogs were kind of something we just had to deal with. Um, but that night, that, that first night that Agree stole the steaks, we go to the yard, and sure enough, there's the fucking dogs, and they come running over. And uh, they I don't think they had started barking yet. We could see them coming from a distance, and they were coming right to us. 
and uh, agree unwrapped uh, one of the steaks and uh, held it up next to the fence. And the dogs must have caught a, a whiff of it and started running even faster to the fence once they, they smelled the steak. And they were just like so stoked and their tails were wagging. But again, they hadn't barked at us yet. And uh, so he was like, hey, you know, we'll bring you steaks if you guys be cool. And they were just like salivating. And he threw the steak over the fence. And one of the dogs ran and grabbed it. And he grabbed the others. I think he stole two that first time. And um, gave the other dog the other steak. And uh, they were so stoked. They, they ate him up and ate, you know, were so pumped. And their tails were wagging. And uh, I think there might have been... Might have been a spot where there was a hole in the fence or a spot where somebody had kind of tried to repair a hole in the fence but didn't do a very good job. So we were able to get through that, but the dogs weren't able to come through. Um, I don't think we had to climb over the fence that first time. But in any case, we went into the yard and the dogs just followed us around like they were hoping for more steaks. And they were, they were with us the whole time. It was the funniest fucking thing. I think somebody in... Uh, the New York subway graffiti writing scene uh, must have told him about the stakes because New York famously put up double fences with uh, guard dogs in between the fences and writers would just bring the dog stakes and then just cut right through the, the fences. <laughs> um, and another thing I remember, agree would rack um, mostly brand new stuff. The only time I really saw him steal, uh, like from thrift stores, was when he would get these big oversized leather coats, which is the stuff that he would use to uh, steal. Um, so they weren't like too flashy. They were worn in. Um, it, I don't know. It was just a good, it was smart, I always thought. And one night we got chased out of the freight train yard. And we had to go over a pretty high, gnarly, uh, it might have even been razor wire, not just regular barbed wire, but the, the razor wire is especially nasty. And it is terribly dangerous to try to go over it without getting some pretty nasty cuts. Um, I'm so tall, I can usually, I have an easier time than most getting over that kind of stuff. But Agree was kind of a big dude, average height, not in great cardio shape at all. Um, and fences were kind of a bitch, you know, but that motherfucker could climb them. But he would take those thrift store leather coats if he had to, and he would throw them over the razor wire or barbed wire so that he could climb over the leather coat and just leave it up there as he needed to run away, which, again, I thought was so fucking smart. You know, he he was... And the whole intention was that those coats were temporary, basically, or you could just dump them at any moment. You know, if you got chased out of a store, you could just dump the coat. And then again, you have no merchandise on you. And then all of a sudden you're a lot lighter, too, um, and you can run faster. So those, those little things I always thought were super, super smart. Um, I don't know if it was Agree or it might have been might have been Gray. The graffiti writer Gray, PVC crew, uh, he came up in Albuquerque too and learned a lot from Agree. He's a really, really accomplished thief himself. And uh, I don't know if it was Agree or 
Prey that did this first, but the, 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 the idea was to go in and buy a big plastic trash container with the lid, fill it up with stuff while you're in the store. Of course, spray paint is what we would be after. And then go to the register and just get rung up for the trash can itself. And then, you know, just waltz right out the store with a receipt, you know, and just put the whole thing in your car and get the fuck out of there. Um, I feel like it didn't work a few times for a few different people and they had to just run and just leave the, the cart and the and the trash can even though they, they actually paid for the trash can um but that did work a few times uh i i feel like i think agree pulled that off um later on when i moved to the bay area um i'll, I'll do that in another part but we got a, a whole bunch of other cool like uh scams to get paint for free or for cheap um put some tea here so a big thing with, not a big thing hanging with Agree was just access to magazines and books. You know, he, he really was a avid collector of anything graffiti related. One of the first things I remember from his collection was uh, IGT. Uh, I think it was International Graffiti Times. And I believe Phase 2 was the creator of that. It was like a of a fold-out newspaper kind of a thing about graffiti writing obviously but like there was a lot of philosophy in there phase two is quite the graffiti philosopher and uh you know a lot of dope pieces and uh just all kinds of stuff and it was definitely coming from a new york city perspective which was new to me um living in albuquerque uh to see like really current underground um you know like these kind of things these newspapers and zines that were getting passed around at the time um and even you know real kind of uh small run magazines i think another one of the early ones that agree had was can control and that was from los angeles i believe power um put that one out and that was super dope too. Again, the only way to see really dope graffiti, uh, if you didn't live in those different cities or were traveling around, um, you had to see them in photographs or in these magazines. Um, so they were really important at uh, spreading styles all over the country and inspiring people with you know different techniques and, and color combos and things that were common to different places. Um, trying to think what other ones might have had some skills magazines back then too. Um, some of the European ones were starting to come out. I remember there was a bunch from Australia that were really good. There were some from England. Um, I think that's all that we were really finding. Luckily, we had a good magazine shop across from the college in Albuquerque back then. Um, and a few other spots that would carry uh, graffiti magazines. Um, like the, the classic place to find those back in the day was Tower Records. If you went to any of their locations, you'd, it was like the holy grail of international graffiti media. I could spend hours in there sometimes digging through everything. 
um, super inspiring. But uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, I can remember just a lot of painting adventures with Agree. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, at the time he was living in a uh, apartment building. Where was that? I think that was near Wyoming and Montgomery, again, for the people at Albuquerque, if I remember right. Um, and there was a strip mall that I believe, what was this store? There was a store that we would rack music from. That was another great racking story, actually, now that my memory is starting to go back to, to there. Uh, a lot of stores... Um, we're realizing that uh, a lot of their merchandise was being stolen and in the early 90s they started to put in all these different kinds of sensors and these oversized packages um, that made things easier to hide or whatever um, and it was the audio tape era um, we were mostly listening to tapes on boom boxes and in our car so the, the tape was the preferred um, the preferred medium for years and years then. Uh, so at this, oh, it was called Hastings was the name of the store. And they put in these big, um, sensors at the exit doors, um, that would go off, you know, if you tried to walk out with anything that was like, had a magnetic sticker or something on it. And they also put the audio tapes in these gigantic plastic uh, holders, basically, that were, God, like more than a foot long um, piece of plastic just for a little audio tape. And they would have to break the, they had a special tool that could open up the case to get the actual audio tape out of it to, to sell to you and put in the bag. Um, and they thought they were pretty slick, like they had it all figured out. And I remember going there one afternoon with a Gree. It was quite busy in the store. Um, we walked right in the entrance. He walked right over to the hip-hop section. He flipped through and grabbed probably a dozen tapes. But again, they're in these big plastic case things. It's I, I'll try to find a picture um, to include when I add this uh, post to, on Instagram about this podcast um, just to give it a context because it's really hard to describe what they were um, but he would he had six of them in each hand and they kind of fanned out in this particular way when you'd hold them by the handles and you had a whole bunch at a time and he just grabbed them and was like let's go and I was like okay let's see what this what happens and he just walk towards the entrance doors and it just happened to be that somebody a family was walking in now he had made a may have been keeping an eye on the door kind of uh waiting for the right people to open the entry door that wouldn't trip if they saw that he was blatantly stealing I think he was that smart to you know be be waiting for the right opportunity um, because sure enough, the entry door opened. It was a, a family 
obviously didn't have a lot of money and saw agree and i feel like the the dad in the family he smiled and kind of got out of the way so agree could go out the entry door with all these obviously stolen tapes in his hands and we just walked out casually and went, went to the car and we left and i was just like dude how the fuck did you get away with that you know and he was like well they put those fucking sensor things at the exit but not the entrance so they no longer have a security guard at the entrance so the entrance is just game on you just have to wait for somebody to come through you know and make your move but nobody's watching the entrance anymore it's even easier to steal than ever and i just thought that was so fucking smart he had kind of just outwitted them by just being obvious as fuck which was counterintuitive to me mm. Oh, but so Hastings was very, very close to his apartment at the time. I think we could see it um, from the front porch of his apartment at that time. The, just a little apartment that he shared with his mom. He always lived with just with his mom. And uh, we decided we wanted to do a nice production. I think there might have been five or six of us. Um, on the back of this strip mall again that we could kind of see from from his uh, from his front porch um, Which was kind of bold you know, like we were kind of counting on the fact that um, No one would drive down the alley in the middle of the night on a weekday Because um, it would be really obvious uh, what we were up to and again, it was pre-cell phones, but we knew if somebody drove through there, it was going to only probably be five or ten minutes before the cops got there. Because once they, once they got to a phone, they would call police, and it was only a matter of time. So we're just getting started. I think I had two full milk crates full of paint. I was about to get loose, like a real production. And I think the other guys that were there were going to too. I know Agree was there. Trying to think who else might have been there. Maybe Sec, C E K. Oh man, I really wish I could remember. If anybody from back then remembers this adventure, uh, help me out with details. But anyway, we, uh, yeah, so a car went through the alley. We all kind of were like, fuck, well, let's just see what happens. You know, maybe they're not going to call the police and we should just keep working away. And maybe that was the only thing we'd have to worry about tonight. But maybe 10 minutes later, another set of headlights um, in the uh, alley. And as soon as they turned into the alley, they accelerated. And any kind of criminal of any sort, I think, when you hear the rev of a police car coming at you, it's like, uh, I don't know, it kicks in some like animal instinct. Like, I got to get out of here, panic mode kind of shit. <laughs> And so we all bounced. We all ran like hell. And for some reason, I was the last one in the, the group of us that were running from the police. And uh, I feel like I remember seeing friends jump over a, f a wooden fence to get into backyards because then you could kind of run past the sides of the houses and get out to the street and keep running you know but you had some options and you knew if they went back to their cars you were long gone um it was easy to kind of run from police in albuquerque uh usually um but this time 
fucking cops were right on my ass, really close. Um, again, I'm so tall, I can just kind of leap over a fence. So I just kind of, I think it was about a six foot fence, maybe seven foot. And I'm able to just kind of run and throw my hands on top of it and just throw myself up onto my waist pretty easy and then just flip over backwards on the other side of the fence and keep running. Um, done that a million times. But this one particular time, I jump up, I get my waist up onto the top of the fence, I'm about to roll over, and one of the cops grabs my fucking foot. And I'm like, oh, fuck. You know, luckily, my fucking shoe fell off. And he fell backwards, I think, into his partner. And I fucking fell to my head um, in the dirt on the other side. Oh, luckily, it was dirt on the other side of the fence. And just fucking took off running. Um, but could, had no idea where my other friends had run to. I was all by myself at that point, running with one shoe on. <laughs> but I got away. Um, I think I hid for a little while. Uh, I feel like I remember going to a place where I could. I was far enough that the cops couldn't see me, but I could see down the alley and see that they were putting all this our spray paint in their trunks. Or it might have been just one squad car, if I remember right. Um, there might have been more that came later on. I can't remember that detail. But in any case, they took all our paint, and I kind of just waited it out, and uh, they drove away, and I kind of leisurely made my way, my way, my way back, way back, back up to uh, a Green's house, and uh, they, <laughs> him and my friends were all on the front porch drinking 40s. And when they saw me walking up, they just screamed and hollered and jumped around and whooped and were like, oh, fuck, we all got away safe. That's amazing, you know? And it was just such a great feeling to get there and everybody's cheering like we're a little team and we all got away. And, um, of course, I had one shoe. <laughs> they were like, what's up with your shoe, dude? You know, and I told them that story and they were like, fuck yeah, bro, that was close. And uh, I think they had a cold 40 waiting for me, too. And we kicked it, had a good time, um, and just were like, fuck it. All that paint was stolen. We'll just try again. That was kind of stupid, what we tried. <laughs> but that was a hell of a fucking... I guess I'll talk about Doc for a second. He was, uh, again, my primary influence other than Agree. I met him the same day that I met Agree in 1990 after um, Agree had called the KUNM uh, radio station on a Friday night and talked to me. Mm. Doc was, uh, he was another guy that had a lot of uh, graffiti media, especially from the West Coast, like magazines and photos and posters and all kinds of stuff. He was also um, the main connect in Albuquerque for the different uh, spray can nozzles that we used to try to steal from different household products, like uh, Agree showed me. Um, Doc had already somehow found the phone number for the manufacturer of the actual nozzles and was buying them by the garbage bag full. And then he would sell those off like drugs, you know, five at a time to us. I think it was like five for a dollar, something like that back then. And he was just... He was a he was a savvy dude. He, he ended up in Albuquerque because he got caught up in a a drug case. Um, I think he was selling coke and maybe weed, maybe some other things. 
again, this is all if I remember correctly, but I'm pretty sure this is right. And uh, he, uh, his, I think his dad knew that he was in some trouble and had a friend who was a professor, I believe, in the f photography department at UNM, University of New Mexico, and got a doc um, whose real name was Luke Hudson, rest in peace, uh, got him a, uh, was able to uh, go to school at UNM. He was accepted. And, uh, and that got him out of, uh, Venice, California, where he was living, Venice Beach. Um, and, uh, so he was still kind of a wild ass dude. Um, he just happened to be transplanted in Albuquerque. Uh, he did drink a lot. He would drink a lot of whiskey and do cocaine. I have never in my life done cocaine probably because of Doc's example, because he would use it and he would turn into kind of a demon, like real evil and dark and scary. And, uh, you know, he threatened my life a few times when he was like that. And I had to like grab him by the shoulders and be like, bro, it's Mike. Like it's your best friend. What the fuck, dude? Like I'm the only one that'll still hang out with you when you do this, you know? Don't fuck this up or you'll be all by yourself, you know, and he would kind of snap to it. But sometimes I'd have to leave. And I definitely felt honestly uh, a little uns unsafe. You know, he was he was volatile. Um, but at the same time, he was a really, really great artist and photographer. Um, he was great with mixing color. Uh, the, the way that graffiti writers in Los Angeles in particular mixed color was very, very different um than the rest of the world it was kind of what i would say more influenced by lowrider paint jobs and custom car paint jobs um like really 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 smooth fades with really bright colors um yeah just like a really fine car you know whereas new york it could be a bit more i don't know um broken up and um complex uh wild let's say you know or as la was really polished and smooth and fresh and uh, i love both and luckily i had doc and agree to teach me so i had both and i think that's a huge reason why i made the headway into the graffiti world that i did um but i'm trying to think doc was the first one that showed me how to cut back with the color underneath a color that you just painted so that you can create uh, crisp uh, edges, crisp corners. They look razor sharp, um, which was something that kind of had eluded me until he showed me that. Uh, he showed me all kinds of cool like chrome effects and things. Um, yeah, he was another fucking character. Uh, he also he wasn't so much into racking like stealing like we did especially body racking he was a little older he did have i believe a record in california that could catch up with him if he got in real trouble in albuquerque so he wasn't trying to fuck around too much but he also got um st he was on student he got student loans uh so he could uh go to the university of new mexico but he would end up spending the majority of 
that loan money whenever he would get it on cocaine and the spray can nozzles um, because then he could sell those spray can caps you know for the whole semester and have cash all the time um, and everybody knew that he had them and it was just as easy as knocking on the door and he'd sell you some it was pretty hilarious kind of um, but at that point they were really indispensable to us as a technical tool because they were the best caps for doing technical graffiti work period um i think some good adventure stories with him well he was i'll tell you one is kind of more on a personal tip just because I, I i think it's great to build the character of these legendary people and uh one night he had gotten high on whiskey and cocaine and decided to shave his head with a razor um but he was kind of fucked up and he cut himself quite a few times maybe five or six pretty good cuts just like out on his bald head um and he had quite a sunburn i remember before he shaved his head so his head was white 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 <laughs> and you could see the hairline so clearly he looked like a crazy person um, and he was a crazy person especially in that moment and uh, he was getting out of hand and I think I was like dude I gotta get out of here you're fucking you're too lit you know it's getting dangerous I'm gonna roll and he ended up uh, leaving his house barefoot in just these white jeans I remember no shirt bald head bleeding out of his head and he walked over to the uh, university of new mexico and was just kind of walking around just high as shit just like like a crackhead you know <laughs> and uh he saw this guy that uh was lighting fires in trash cans on campus um and he could kind of see you know the guy was just walking along and lighting one on fire and then walking to the next and lighting one and because the fires were bigger where Luke was and he could he saw the guy trying to light one up so he starts running after this guy he doesn't know doesn't know anything like what's going on high on whiskey and coke fucking sketchy looking and bare feet running on concrete slap 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 you know I can only imagine and uh, he fucking caught up with the dude and hit him just in the head from behind just like a, a clubbed him with his right hand and uh it didn't stop the guy it i guess it made him wobble a little bit but he kept running but luke in that m moment broke his hand broke the outside bone on the lower part of his hand um which happens a lot when you kind of club somebody and don't punch them properly um and so at that point he wasn't far from the university hospital so he goes right to the hospital and again he's crazed he's bleeding out of his head his feet were probably filthy from running around he came in fuming and in tons of pain and I'm sure they were just like holy shit call security you know and he's like i broke my fucking hand i broke my fucking hand you know let me talk to security there was a guy lighting fires on campus he might still be doing it just like crazed and uh they did what they could to kind of calm him down 
and get him out of the hospital. And they told him that his hand wasn't broken, that he was going to be fine. And uh, the next day, he was pretty convinced that his hand was broken and you know by then he was basically sober and was just like something's something's wrong and so he knew a lawyer or had a friend that gave got him in touch with a lawyer and told him the situation and the lawyer told him to go get an exam on his hand that day which he did and they confirmed that he did have a broken hand and so they sued the University of New Mexico for malpractice. <laughs> this fucking guy that was using their loan money to pay for cocaine and spray can caps is now, he won, I don't even know. It was like ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, if I remember right. It was pretty substantial. Um, and again, that just kind of... Uh, it's like giving a drug addict all of a sudden all that money, you know, he just, he was, uh, he was on fire, you know, uh, it was probably not the best thing, <laughs> but that was the kind of guy that he was. He was fucking wild. I can, I just, what popped into my memory here, the last few minutes of this hour and a half rambling thing down memory lane. I hope you're still with me. Um, there was a Christmas, I think it was a Christmas Eve. Uh, we had a party at Doc's house, most of the guys that were in ATK. And uh, we were drinking a lot, more than usual. And we had like, Doc liked uh, peppermint schnapps for some reason. <laughs> he would, we would kill whole bottles of Rumpelmans. And at the time there was a, a drink that had like gold flakes in it that he liked. I don't remember what that was, but we were also drinking, uh, they had pre-made, uh, Long Island iced teas and, uh, oh, a brass monkey. And there was one other cocktail that you could get, maybe a Mai Tai that were in these bottles we could get at Walgreens. That was the kind of shit that we would get loose on when we'd party down and it was a holiday. And at some point... <laughs> I don't know who suggested it. I think I did. I wanted to go paint uh, a spot that I thought would be pretty hot. It was right on Central. Um, it's a little wall at the south end of the university campus, right near university. And there's like, a, they, I, don't, I think they got rid of it. There was a staircase that would take you down to the sidewalk level because uh, it was quite hilly there and it would, um and so and there was a big wall there that was right on central where everybody would cruise it was a super hot spot and it was right across the street from a dunkin donuts and uh i was just i had always figured if cars came along you could just duck in to the stairwell and wait for the cars to drive by and then come back out and continue working on your graffiti and uh i explained all this to agree and he was like hell yeah let's do this and so we went, we checked it out. It looked good. Um, there was very little traffic because it was Christmas Eve, as we had suspected. And uh, we decided to go ahead and, and get down. And I think we decided just to do throw-ups. I don't know if we did filled-in throw-ups. I knew we didn't have a ton of time to do it, but we had enough. And so we, we jump out, we start painting the wall, 
I think we must have been doing fill-ins or maybe even pieces. I mean, I, I can't remember. But we got uh, spotted by security and it might have been APD too, Albuquerque police. And we had to run. And we ran across uh, Central from where we were painting into the neighborhood there, which I think is still called the student ghetto. And we just hid out and kind of kept an eye on what was happening. And we could see that all these uh, cops who had really nothing to do were pulling up to the place where we had started painting and were getting out of their cars and running in every direction, looking around. I think UNM security were doing the same thing, running around, looking, looking for us. And uh, again, we could see all this from a distance and we we're just kind of laughing. That was one of my favorite moments when you get chased and then you get to a place where you could just watch them look for you and feel completely safe and just wait, wait it out, wait until they get tired of looking and then just go back and finish what you started. And that's exactly what we did. We had even uh, decided that uh, it would be safe enough for us to go into the Dunkin' Donuts that was across the street from the spot that we painted uh, towards the end of the, the cops' investigation. So they were literally like, they could have just looked over their shoulder and seen both of us who did it, but they just didn't know that. We were just two guys eating donuts, drinking coffee on Christmas Eve. And uh, so we saw them drive away. And we finished up our donuts and coffee and looked at each other like, you want to go finish? And I was like, fuck yeah, I do. Let's go do it. <laughs> so we just casually walked across the street and finished our shit and uh, fucking bounced and went back to Doc's with a great story. Another story about Doc just came to mind where uh, he wasn't the kind of guy, like I say, that wanted to steal um, body racking and whatnot. So he would figure out different ways of scheming uh, to get what he needed and uh you know he needed spray paint uh lots of it and uh instead of racking it he would use his student loan money and he would go right to a place called custom paint that i think is still in albuquerque on lomas by the fairgrounds and uh excuse me i need some tea <coughs> there we go um custom paint and so Luke would roll up in there and uh, he would just uh, tell them he wanted to order spray paint you know in volume direct and they were more than happy to help him out um, so he would often just buy uh, the little six pack boxes of every single color that uh, Krylon sold and uh, when you did that at a store Normally, they would send you a rack for free that said Krylon on it. And, uh, you know, you'd have this cool rack. And, you know, it was really impressive back in those days to go to a graffiti writer's house and they have the actual Krylon store rack and it's full. Um, that was like, oh man, I, I can't think of a a more uh, impressive thing to a graffiti writer back then. <laughs> so anyway, one time Doc uh, got all his paint ordered and it came in and he went down there and they told him, hey, you, you, you get this rack with it. You know, it was this like five foot tall box and uh, he got it home and it was this rack that was kind of 
decorated and built out to look like a little house. Um, it was like to pitch to people that it was this home improvement kind of uh, paint, you know, that you could paint furniture and uh, cabinets and, you know, everything with it. Um, it was this new amazing material. Um, so he had this cool house rack and, that, and the house rack would spin around 360 so you could access the whole thing. And of course, he had every single color available and he filled that thing up and it was just this like, I don't know, it's almost like a Christmas tree to a graffiti writer, <laughs> you know, because usually when you're stealing, you just have to grab like the colors that are available. And then when you're out painting, you kind of have to figure out color schemes based on what you have, you know, so, you know, the perfect situation would be if you had every single color that a company made that you could just go to the rack and just pick from it and throw it in your bag to take out that night. That was like the dream, you know, and Doc was able to do that every fucking time, to be honest. Um, yeah, and eventually, I don't know how this came about, but I ended up getting the house rack, and it was in my apartment um, for a while, and I remember one night in particular, um, I, I must have had Oh, no, that was a different night. So I was just at home alone in my little apartment building, probably my second or third year of college, probably just the second year. And uh, I got a knock on the door, hard knock like a cop, you know, which usually is a bad sign. So I uh, checked the door tentatively and there was a fireman. And he said that one of the units um, in my apartment complex was on fire and they were running around looking for uh, potential hazards that could make the fire uh, spread just in case it came all the way over to my unit. And he just wanted to look around really quickly and check the heater was a, a main thing. Um, so I let him in the house. I think I was just in my underwear, <laughs> you know, as a college kid, like, hey, what's going on, man? And uh, they went in and they saw the uh, revolving, uh, the Krylon rack, was right next to the hot water heater. <laughs> and I remember the fireman freaked out. He was just like, you couldn't have put a more dangerous thing next to a, a hot water heater. I mean, it's got a live pilot light, you know, there's an actual flame and you have all these uh, cans that could leak vapor that could set all this, you know, it's like a huge bomb basically right next to your hot water heater. And I was just like, oh man, I'm sorry, it was just like where I could fit it in here, you know, and he was just like, you gotta, you gotta move this out of here immediately, you know, and I actually started taking it apart right then and there to get it out of there, um, and they didn't stick around, I remember they split, but I remember they fucking freaked out, I was like, why do you have a bomb in your apartment, sir? <laughs> Another, uh, favorite memory from that time in the early 90s, um, was a writer's meeting that we had at the Frontier Restaurant. I think I've mentioned that in the past, that place. was kind of a spot that we all hung out at. And uh, I can't remember the original uh, impetus behind why we needed to meet. Um, you know, on some level it was to air out beefs and uh, that kind of stuff. But um, we ended up getting all together. It was probably, fuck, 50 or 60 of us, I think. And uh, we took over the far back room of the frontier. It was kind of a 
big restaurant that's broken up into I think five or six sections and we were all the way in the back and people were drinking 40s and smoking weed and people were tagging on the tables and it was fucking chaotic mayhem um definitely kind of freaked out the uh employees and got in trouble pretty quickly and had to move the meeting actually uh across the street we all got together i think the cops had already arrived and we kind of cockroached and bounced and reconnected and uh i knew there was a uh like a conference room um that the door was unlocked near the main uh like uh uh auditorium at the uh, university campus which is just straight across the street from the frontier and uh yeah we again i forget exactly what the beefs were about um but at that meeting it was decided that there would be uh two crews that would kind of go head to head on the streets in albuquerque um and it was cmf and gmw and uh i forget oh right uh i heard from my old friend uh cast and he let me know that it was bricks um who also went by image and era who was the president of cmf at that time and i think uh gmw was a cast crew um that he brought out from san francisco um I guess there was some beef there between uh, Cass and Agree that might have been at work in this uh, battle. Um, I, I guess that uh, when Cast went back to uh, San Francisco for a bit, uh, while he was away, Agree was talking shit. And I can understand that because that happened to me too pretty much every time I left town and connected with other writers in other cities, uh, I would come back to hear that Agree had talked all kinds of shit. Um, I think that his shit talking came from um, being self-conscious and a little embarrassed because often, like in my case, when I would travel to other places, of course other writers would ask me, you know, who taught you? And I would often mention agree. And sometimes uh, I would be uh, hanging out with people in crews that agree said he was down with. And I would be surprised when they had, hadn't heard of him because I'd mentioned, oh, well, he's in your crew. And they'd be like, what? Who is this guy? And they'd be like, nah, dude, he's, he's not in our crew. He's fronting. And I would be like, oh, Bummer. I mean, it it never mattered to me. Agree was dope, and he didn't need to exaggerate his accomplishments and his alliances and whatnot. He had no reason for that, but I think he, you know, he did. And uh, I think that that kind of led to a bit of a split between him and I, too, after I had traveled to, like, San Diego and Chicago and some other places and found out that um his supposed alliances were false and he knew that and i think he knew that i knew that but i don't think we ever actually talked about it um but in any case uh he had done the same thing to to cast 
And uh, so, yeah, so Cass brought GMW out from San Francisco and was trying to get it popping. And uh, and we were all for it, you know. And it ended up creating this uh, fucking just mad bombing battle on the streets uh, between GMW and CMF. And uh, if I remember right, GMW was graffiti's most wanted and CMF was crazy motherfuckers, as you might imagine. Um, And it was just so cool to see, like, all of a sudden, there was a huge uptick in the the number of tags and throw-ups and stuff all over town. I think it was on the TV news a few times, because it was just, all of a sudden, there was a lot more graffiti, and the cops were kind of tripping, and... uh, I remember some people getting investigated here and there because of that. I don't know if anybody got arrested or any of that, but it was a it was a really really infamous thing. And I think if you were there, that was really a you know a special moment that we can all look back on. All right, I'm gonna end the podcast there for now, um, but I'll pick up uh, in the next one uh, once I move to uh, San Francisco in uh, 93 in that whole transition time um so stay tuned more to come thank you